This is Anne Marie Lewis, and you are listening to We Are Rivers, conversations about the rivers that connect us, brought to you by American Rivers. Today, we are going to talk about the concepts around how people and entities are allowed to use water in the West, such as cities and towns, farms and ranches, and industry. This ability is what we call owning a water right and dictates much of how the West has been settled over the last century, and how many of the economic forces that affect our daily lives are driven by these water rights. A water right designates how much water someone can divert out of a river or stream, and there are very strict and detailed criteria for obtaining and retaining water rights. If you haven't ever heard of the term a water right before, and to live in the West, you still are impacted by them, since chances are good that you use water based off of one. Unless you have your own well or diversion, the water running through your pipes is likely municipal water provided by a city or town, and your community has to have a water right themselves to divert and distribute the water that ends up in your home. You may have questions popping up in your mind like, what criteria do you need to have a water right? Are they expensive? Etc. On a recent sunny Friday afternoon, to help me answer some of these questions, I met with Matthew Merrill, a water law attorney based in Denver, Colorado. Matthew's practice areas are water quality, natural resources law, and litigation. We chatted in a fifth floor conference room with a wall of windows to my right. Out this view appeared a large billboard on a building next door, and our chat began. Before we dive right into it though, I have to do my three lawyerly disclaimers really quick. Uh, And the first one is that this interview represents my views and not the views of our firm or our firm's clients. The second thing is that I can't give legal advice in a podcast, and so I'm instead going to talk generally about the law. And if people listening have legal problems, you should consult your own lawyer about that. Uh, And then third, I just want to be clear, I'm speaking about Colorado law today. Prior appropriation and Western water law share similarities across the Western states, but I'm only competent to try to speak about Colorado here. So if you're in Colorado, if you're taking water from what's called the natural stream, you need a water right. And the natural stream in one sense is just what it sounds like, a river, you know, a creek. And then it's slightly broader than that because groundwater often is connected to those surface streams. And so in Colorado, we count groundwater, most groundwater as being part of the natural stream that you could appropriate from. Now, turning on your tap, that's you're not taking water from a stream, you're taking it from a pipe. And so that itself isn't a water right, but the water that comes from a tap just about anywhere in Colorado is pursuant to someone else's water right. So a water right in in a western state like Colorado is a form of a property right and a person can own it sort of semi-privately like a person could own a chunk of land or have a right to some minerals under some land. And the there's several elements to a water right and, and it's a constitutional right in Colorado. So you don't technically need to go to court in order to have one, but you go to court to get your water right confirmed. And that is to say, how will your water right be uh, handled in comparison to everyone else on the stream who wants to use water from the same source? Now, the big thing that many people have probably heard about Western water law already is prior appropriation or the the doctrine of uh, the first person who comes gets all their water needs satisfied before the second person in line gets any. In, in practice, it's not one person on the stream usually taking water, but at some point, people are getting cut off and not allowed to take any because folks who started using water earlier in time than them need all the water that's available. And, and that's a, a feature, I would say, of 
almost all Western states where this prior appropriation system is developed is that there's not enough water in the river to go around. There's not enough to serve everyone's needs. And so there needed to be some way to parcel out who gets what and when. And the system that was settled on is this idea of first come, first serve. Now, that sounds totally crazy when you think about living in a a arid state and there's no sharing of water or something like that. But I think the concept over time has actually worked out and what you have is a form of a water market. So the uses that were adopted first and have the most senior priority will be the most reliable. And so they're the most valuable. And so if people want a really reliable water supply, they'll go buy a so-called senior water right and use that. And if you don't need such a reliable supply, then you could appropriate or maybe not even have to buy, just go take from the stream a junior water right. And the, the trade-off to that is that you wouldn't be able to take that water whenever you wanted. You'd have to wait until you're in priority. Prior appropriation, a system created to deal with water shortage, was originally established in 1855 California during the Gold Rush, when two miners named Matthew Irwin and Robert Phillips fought over their water appropriations in the California Supreme Court case Irwin v. Phillips. The central question of the case was whether or not an individual could divert a large amount of water for mining that could potentially leave an inadequate amount of water for people who subsequently settled the land. It was ruled that a person who first applies water for a beneficial use is entitled to that appropriation into the future, and has priority over subsequent users. It is important to note, however, that holding a water right is not the same as owning the water. The water is owned by the people of Colorado. A water right is the right to use the people's water for a beneficial use, but does not imply actual ownership. And the water must be used properly as defined by law. The case also established that future settlers have no right to complain if water is already taken for legitimate uses. They must take the land as it is, especially because they could likely benefit from the already legitimate uses. And, very importantly, the policy referred to as the use-it-or-lose-it policy was established, dictating that if a water right owner fails to use the amount of water originally appropriated to them, their water right can potentially be taken away and made available for use by others. Water rights are a property right that can be bought and sold. So water rights established in the 1800s still exist and are in use today. And despite how many times a water right is bought and sold, it maintains its original priority decree date from the date it was originally established. So as long as it is still used as it was in the beginning. Water rights that are more senior have an older decree or appropriation date. During times of water shortages, senior water rights have priority to receive their water first over the other younger or junior water rights. These older rights are more reliable in the priority appropriation system and can therefore be very expensive when bought and sold. So for example, cities tend to appropriate water and they're a great example with this water market concept of needing to buy water if you're a city you have a a duty to make sure that your citizens have enough water to drink regardless of the drought conditions outside. And so cities are motivated to buy senior water rights on the river and change them to be used in their municipal systems because it's such a reliable supply to go that far up the priority chain. So municipalities being able to buy more senior water rights is good in the sense that such provides a better guarantee that they can provide citizens water for drinking, showering, etc., 
but it's a double-edged sword in the sense that it can contribute to a harmful practice called buy and dry, which we covered in We Are Rivers last episode, How Water Management and Flexibility Can Save the Colorado River. Prior appropriation is only one aspect of a water right. In order to get or retain a water right, the water must have a mechanism of diversion and be used for what the government considers a beneficial use. So, I've mentioned the concept of when do you get to the stream. That's one critical element of a water right. The second is diversion. So that's taking control of the water somehow. And in the old sense, it meant moving water from a stream to land where you wanted to use it, like irrigating a field or running it through a mill on a, or using it in a mine. There's some broader definitions now of diversion now that we have in-stream flow rights that we can talk about. The third element then is beneficial use. So the idea is you shouldn't take water out of the stream and just waste it or not do anything with it because someone else probably has in mind to, to benefit the state or to undertake a business operation or something with use of water. So if you're going to divert water and claim a place in the priority system, then you need to be putting it to some kind of a beneficial use. A beneficial use basically means a use where the water is put to work. Uses such as irrigation, mining, business, municipal, consumption, etc. Beneficial uses are defined by the legislature. They have grown and evolved considerably since Colorado water law was first set down in 1876 and now include things never dreamed of back then. Uses such as aesthetic, raising fish, environmental, and recreational needs are now recognized legal beneficial uses with equal standing among the older, more traditional uses. Originally, a water right had its beneficial use under the banner of economic growth, agriculture and domestic, municipal, and industrial applications. A water right could not be obtained with the intentions of water conservation. But today, if a conservation organization wants to buy an old water right and keep that water in a stream or reservoir to benefit the system as a whole, they can, but only if that water is sold or donated to the state as a part of the in-stream flow and lake protection program. Organizations like American Rivers, agencies like the Bureau of Land Management, and even individuals can also make in-stream flow recommendations to the Colorado Water Conservation Board for new or additional in-stream flow rights. If those work out, the state will then go to water court for that appropriation. Most all in-stream flow rights were and are obtained and adjudicated as new rights without any donation, purchase, lease, or conversion from an existing right. This is because change cases are pretty onerous, and most people avoid them if they can. But if time and money aren't an object, or if the right is important enough, it can be donated to the state as part of the in-stream flow and lake protection program. The in-stream flow and lake protection program was established in 1973 by the Colorado legislature. For the first time, water use for the environment was recognized as beneficial. And so for a hundred plus years of the state's history, there was no such thing as an in-stream flow right. And in the 1970s, this is sort of part of the broader environmental movement that took place in the United States, the Colorado legislature created an in-stream flow program. And it designated an agency in Colorado, the Colorado Water Conservation Board, to appropriate new water rights for the minimum amount of stream flow or the minimum lake level necessary to preserve the natural environment to a reasonable degree. Originally, minimum in-stream flow was for the minimal amount needed to protect the environment to a reasonable degree, a loose term. Minimum in-stream flow designated just about enough water to keep the back of a fish wet. 
but that has also changed and evolved over time, and now water can be acquired through an in-stream flow right that improves and enhances the environment above and beyond the minimum. But the minimum in-stream flow is a water right like all others, subject to prior appropriation, and since it was established in 1973, when there is a lack of water in the basin, all water rights senior to a minimum in-stream flow's appropriation date are guaranteed water before the river can receive its minimum in-stream flow. The reason senior water rights affect in-stream flows is that they are senior to those flows, and so there's no sort of grandfathering in of the, the water rights of the stream, if you want to call it that, to fit ahead of these senior water rights. And there are numerous senior water rights in Colorado that have a right to take more than is in the river on a lot of days. And so you can see a senior water right completely dry up the river. And if they're doing that under an 1865 or an 1870 appropriation, then a 1975 appropriation by the Colorado Water Conservation Board has no legal standing to say stop diverting. That It's just the way the priority system works that the river will go dry. And so the, the in-stream flow program in that simplest form, in the 1970s form, mostly helps existing stretches of river keep from getting worse. So the CWCB, the, the Conservation Board, appropriates a water right, and then anyone who comes after them in line won't get to take it unless they're satisfied in that stream reach. And so it sort of has protected the status quo in a numbers of rivers while maybe not being able to improve the ones that were the most degraded. But there are also other types of rights a river or stream has to guarantee its water other than minimum in-stream flow rights. Yeah, so that's the, the standard in-stream flow by those exact terms. But there's several other ways that you can get water into a river in Colorado, sort of within the riverbanks. And the, the next one, sort of chronologically speaking, to come along after the in-stream flow program is what are now called recreational in-channel diversions. This is commonly known as like a kayak course or a rafting course. And in the 1990s, we saw some some cities and local governments in Colorado putting in rapids, uh, putting rocks in the stream, creating artificial rapids, and hosting national level kayak or rafting competitions, and going to water court and trying to file on those claims. And there was massive concern from other users in the water community that that could really tie up development of Colorado's water resources in the future. And the the fear was that some kind of a city right next to the state's border at the very downstream end would appropriate basically everything that comes through there for their for a kayaking course. And the result of that would be that anyone who came along upstream later would get called out. And so here's this risk of a, a city at the edge of the state calling water for a legit use, but there's no you're not going to use it seven more times. There's no consumptive use. It just flows right through that city and across the border. And that was the concern. And so now there are some pretty detailed statutes about exactly what it takes to get a recreational in-channel diversion water right. There's there's strict limitations on how much you can appropriate, but that is a revenue, uh, excuse me, an avenue that's available, and, and we see those continuing to be appropriated even over the last few years. So that's a second way to get water in a stream. A third method to get water into the stream is the Colorado Water Trust has recently come along and started to get very creative about these in-stream flow deals. And so one example of what they're up to is they'll go to a senior water user and they raise money, they're a nonprofit, and they'll offer to pay the senior to 
either buy the water right outright and try to convert that, change it to be able to be used for something downstream such that it flows through an in-stream reach, or to have a, a temporary loan kind of deal, like in a dry year, they'll approach the farmer and, hey, maybe you can't grow a crop with the limited water anyway, why don't we pay you to keep your field fallow and you can temporarily loan us your water right and we'll use it to boost the stream flows in this critical year for fish. And so from my perspective, I don't, I'm not up to speed on the details, but what the Water Trust is doing is working with senior water rights to, to get around the problem that all these in-stream flow rights have a 1970s appropriation. But only the state, through the Colorado Water Conservation Board, can actually own an in-stream flow right. Water acquired by organizations like the Water Trust for in-stream flow purposes still have to be donated to the Colorado Water Conservation Board and then must go through a process to change the original decreed use to in-stream flow use. Similarly, recreational in-stream diversions can only be acquired and owned by a municipality or county government, not private individuals or NGOs. And there is still one more way to keep water in a stream, the Endangered Species Act. A new major water project will almost always involve some kind of federal permitting. And sometimes the Endangered Species Act can come around and sort of be an important motivator to put more water in the stream. And an example is if you want to build a dam, uh, you need to typically apply for a what's called a 404 permit from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers under the Clean Water Act. And that typically involves review under the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, and NEPA reviews almost always look at endangered species issues. So here you are wanting to build a new dam in Colorado, and if there's a downstream endangered species that's short on water for part of its critical habitat or its survival, you can see the federal agencies require either bypass flows in certain conditions or contribution to a program that tries to buy water and put money in the stream, something to offset what would otherwise be an impact on the downstream endangered species. And if there is no way to offset the negative effect on the endangered species, the development can't go forth. To get back to the topic of water rights, let's now talk about two important aspects of diverting water. Water is diverted for hydrologic transport or whole use and consumptive use, and the difference between the two is important to understand because it often pops up when talking about water conservation and water law. What we call whole use in, in the water world is diversions. So in a change of use, you would look both at the amount of diversions or the whole use and the amount of consumptive use or the amount of the diverted water that actually was consumed by the crop. Typically, for if you flood irrigate a field, you'll roughly get about 65% maybe on the high end of the water gets taken up by the plants and despite trying to be very efficient you'll end up with about 35 percent of the water that just flows back to the aquifer. Now the reason I say lawyers mostly fight about consumptive use is because of how complex that analysis can be. Looking at whole use is usually a matter of looking at diversion records that have been turned in saying this is how much water I took on each day. There can be fights about those but they're pretty simple records, so there's not usually a whole lot of back and forth on that. On the other hand, when you get into consumptive use, you're talking about which crops were planted and which irrigation methods were used and how much did the sun shine, how cloudy was it. I mean, there's just very complex equations that go into how much water plants take up, uh, how fast return flows get back to the stream. And so 
those are the technical details that I see more lawyers fighting over compared to just, you know, how much did you take out of the stream? We, we tend to know that pretty well by now. So, to sum up, whole use is the amount of water that is diverted from a stream. Consumptive use is the portion of whole use that actually gets used for a beneficial purpose, the amount of water a crop actually consumes. The difference between the whole use diversion and the amount of water a crop actually absorbs is water expected to return to the system, also called return flows. In other words, the amount of water that doesn't get consumed flows back into the river at some point for use again downstream. These return flows can be diverted again to other farms, ranches, and municipalities for other beneficial uses. If you are wondering, why is there more water diverted through an irrigation ditch than the consumptive use that plants will actually use? It is because excess water diverted ensures that the consumptive amount needed by plants makes it to the plants by creating momentum in an irrigation channel, and because some of the diverted water evaporates and sinks into groundwater to eventually make its way back to the river. So, if your crop needs 10 cubic feet per second of water to live, you might have to initially divert 15 to move the water to the plants, as well as to allow for some that will evaporate or seep into the ground, which eventually, again, ends up back in the river through subsurface flows. We are stressing the difference between consumptive and whole use because there is no shortage of court cases where consumptive and whole use are debated. The classic example is a change of water right. So that's where someone has appropriated a water right in the past, it's an established existing use, and someone else comes along and wants to change it and put that water to a different use. And if you're going to do that, then like I mentioned, you need to make sure you keep the return flows to the stream in place. So, a water right decree designates the amount of diversion water that can be consumed as well as whole use, and the proportionment is retained through sale. Water right holders are legally allowed to request a beneficial use change, though. For example, if the water right holder wants to change the beneficial use that the water is used for, say from ranching cattle to farming alfalfa, that's fine, but the water holder has to keep the same proportion of consumptive use and whole use. So, the consumptive use of farming alfalfa can't be more than the consumptive use that was originally used for grazing cattle, because such could hurt the rights of water holders downstream because if the consumptive portion of a water right is increased, then less water flows back to the river or stream for other ranchers and farmers downstream to divert. And if a downstream rancher or farmer thinks that a change of use in an upstream water right is shorting the amount of return flow to the river, they can file a case. And that's where Matthew comes in. And so that's where you get this classic fight of lawyers saying, you know, I, no, I think more water returned to the stream than you're saying. Your proposal is to take too much and it's going to short my water right downstream. Whereas the person who wants to transfer saying, no, all I'm doing is taking what the crops used. That, that portion you're claiming you were never entitled to. A change case is where you get into that battle. But court battles over water rights are unbelievably expensive, time consuming, and can give results that no one is particularly happy with. Here's Matthew. Again, he's a water law lawyer, giving his thoughts on the importance of cooperation when battling over return flows, water conservation, and the direction in which Western water is heading. Cooperation is, is huge. I've heard it referred to as the new way of, of doing business, for example, with the Colorado River Cooperative Agreement that my partner David Tosse worked on a few years ago here in our office. And my perspective on this is that we are growing only more complicated as a society and how we use water and 
our demands on water and the system doesn't seem to be providing more and more water. So we're going to have to be more and more efficient about how we use it. And the, the disputes that are coming up are more and more complex. And in the meantime, I don't see, for example, the legal system in Colorado growing in that same way. So we have the same number of water divisions and not many more, not more than 10 more water judges than we had in 1969, so almost 50 years ago. And the, the legal system, the judicial system, frankly, is just overworked. Courts, it's no secret that courts are over busy. And so I think when parties go to present their dispute to a court, you're taking valuable time from the judge and you're asking the judge to decide your issue. They're only gonna have a certain amount of time to do that along with all their other duties. Whereas when parties get together, you can really sit down and take all the time you need. You can have your whole team that's put thousands of hours into a project and someone else who has a different perspective on it and their whole team that's put thousands of hours into a project. And instead of trying to boil that all down into a number of days of trial and hostile cross-examination that just looks to sort of paint each side at its absolute worst, when you put everyone around a table, that gives an opportunity for people to come up with a creative solution that wouldn't even be thought of by a judge, for example. Or a judge wouldn't be able to order that solution that works best for everyone because it doesn't fit in a neat set of legal boxes. But when parties get together across a table and try to write their own agreement and, and make their own piece about how they're going to, to share a river together, then they can be a lot more creative about what's on the table as far as options. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Rivers, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. If you find our series educational, interesting, and informing, please rate and comment. This helps others discover our series too. And we appreciate your support.